0: You are in the warm confines of the salon. And we're glad to have you with us. I'm Derek Duncan, host of the Feed the Ball podcast and architecture editor at Golf Digest. And my co host is the big man, Jim Urbina, one of the world's preeminent golf course builders and consulting architect at venerable historical properties, including Sankety Head, Yeamans Hall, the reclusive Seth Raynor designed Blind Brook in New York, and Pasatiempo. To join us for this cozy little chat is Josh Pettit, a California-based historian, editor, and golf course designer. Pettit has worked all over the country and done extensive research for master plans at places like the Valley Club of Montecito, which we'll discuss in depth in this podcast. He's also the editor and inspiration behind a new book called The McKinsey Reader which came out in 2022, an extensive compendium of much of the architect Alistair McKenzie's most important and charismatic writings taken from his books, letters, and essays he penned for a variety of publications between 1915 and 1935. We'll talk a lot about McKenzie and the book, which is a must-have filled with gorgeous illustrations, photographs, and sketches, and there's a link to directing you how to order it in the show notes. I'll take just a quick second here to ask that you share this podcast and the link to this show with your friends, family, and peers in the golf course industry. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, explore the mini back episodes of Feed the Ball and Feed the Ball Salon, and leave a star rating and review if you would. I'll also remind you that one of the most simple and helpful things you can do each week to aid the climate and your utility bills is to wash your clothes in cold water. The miracle of modern technology, of modern detergent making, means warm and hot water are no longer needed for clean clothes. I've been washing all my family's laundry in cold water for months, and the clothes come out as clean and fresh as they've ever been. So make the adjustment to cold water. It's a small thing that can help make a big difference. This salon talk should be especially interesting to the historians among you and those interested in the protection and revival of historic architecture. It will also, I think, be intriguing to those of you who, like me, seek out great golf writing and wonder why the current era of writing and critical thinking about design seems so shallow compared to Mackenzie's era. We'll get into these topics and more with Josh Pettit, but first, Jim has a quote he'd like to read.
1: You know, Derek, you, like I tend to read a lot of golf architecture books and you as a writer are much more versed in in the study of of writing and what it what it does to tell a story about a particular subject a particular golf course in the case of us golf courses but if you don't mind I'd like to read you a quote from Herbert Warren Wind on uh, his take on golf architecture the first book that Alistair McKenzie uh, wrote if you don't mind Derek
0: no, I'd love to hear Herbert Warren Wind, uh, the person to talk to about writing about golf courses.
1: And I quote: "Golf architecture to be a charming literary adventure. It is primarily the work of a man who is trying to get down on paper his ideas, some obvious and others recondite, about the multiple considerations that go into designing and maintaining a sound, stimulating golf." that both the professional and the average golfer will enjoy End quote Herbert Warren Wynn talks about what Alistair McKenzie trying to do when he writes this book, he's trying to get his thoughts down on paper so that you understand this, the, the concepts that go into architecture and books, as you know, Derek have been written forever about golf architecture. Not a lot of good ones. Uh, but the ones that we like, Golf Architecture by McKenzie, by Hunter, by Tillinghast, by uh, Simpson, by uh, Charles Allison Colt, when we read those books, we take them to heart. George Thomas, we take them to heart and we try to understand everything they're trying to do. And Herbert Warren Wynne simply says that McKenzie's trying to get down on paper his thoughts. And you know, as good as people write, Derek, as good as some of the articles that you write, I know that they can never really tell the full story when you see a golf course. You're trying to put it in words. I don't know how you do it. I'm not a very good writer, but people who do write and poop and people who get down these words in, on paper to explain what they're thinking, it must be difficult.
0: Yeah, it it, it can be difficult. It can. I, I will say, though, I think it's it's not as challenging as writing about music, you know, cause you can describe a physical thing in a way, uh, it, it, you can describe its strengths and its shortcomings in a way that a reader can, can visualize. Whereas, you know, if you're talking about, you know, music or, or poetry or something, you know, you're writing, you're writing about something that's abstract that you can't quite wrap your, your, your eyes and your, your physical mind around that's, that's harder, but good writing is, is certainly not easy. Yeah, the, the all those people that you mentioned were not only laying down, really, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but this was a, a period in the 19-teens and 20s when all of these ideas were still being hashed out and laid out for the first time. And people had their own ideas and there was a, a sense of exploration. So not only was it... Uh, a, a movement unto itself, an artistic movement that was being developed in real time. These guys were great writers. I mean, they really had a gift for language. When you read, um, the architectural side of golf, uh, Simpson and weathered, that's really, it just, it's entertaining just to read those passages on their own. Um, uh, I thought, I think George Thomas was a, a, a wonderful writer, very clear and concise, uh, easily, uh, translatable ideas, what he was talking about with concepts of whole strategies and and uh, lines of play, and of course, maybe the best of all was McKinsey himself. Uh, he, not only is he is he clear and to the point, he comes with a uh, an opinion, a strong opinion. Uh, he he has very forceful thoughts about what good golf courses are, what good golf design is, and there's a real wit and kind of a. Uh, a rapier's edge to his, to his writing that is is entertaining to read. And we miss that now. Uh, I don't we could we could get into it, but it, that style of writing from the 1920s is just different than than it exists now. There's nothing really uh, in our in our media landscape right now that consistently both conveys a sense of real intellectual precision and development and also, just being damn good language.
1: <laughs> damn good language. And that's the thing, Derek, when I read articles about golf uh, golf courses in particular, uh, I'm looking for that language of, the, of, the, of, the, of eras past. Uh, when it first became, uh, 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 as you said, groundbreaking architecture to talk about what people were doing, style of architecture, camouflage in the case of McKinsey. And today, I, I continue to look for those, those uh, eye-catching words, those, those phrases, those simple quotes that make architecture uh, easy to grasp onto because, as you know, you could go down the road way to the left or way to the right and, and, and thousands of miles in between trying to capture what you're trying to say. The good old days. Derek, I know I tend to talk about it way too much, but the writings of old were so captivating, and I miss that.
0: It's, it's, I wonder if part of it is, you know, obviously the, the education that a lot of people had back then was was different they were trained differently in language you know there were they uh people communicated by letters not by telephone so almost everything that you did when to try to express yourself or to communicate was was done with a pen or a typewriter uh, versus that's really not the case so much uh, anymore and also the audiences that they were writing toward would have been much smaller golf was much more insular than than it is today you know just sheer numbers you know they're Millions and millions of golfers today, where there just weren't that many in the 1920s, and many of the the people that would pick up a book or an essay written by McKinsey or uh, uh, one of his contemporaries were uh, maybe a, a, a club member somewhere. You know, they came from probably a, a certain socio-economic class, uh, so they could relate to this kind of language. You know, it was more kind of in their wheelhouse than uh, than you know this in this era there weren't that many you know public golf courses or public players or blue collar golfers there were but not that many and that's not the audience so this is really kind of a an upper class language and an upper class audience that that these golf architects are are writing for versus now you have millions and millions of golfers speaking for me somebody who's in the media i know that my audience is pretty is the architecture audience is really narrow. It's a really narrow piece of the pie compared to the entire golf golf digest audience. You know, who you have many people that are into the PGA tour and they're into the equipment and they're into instruction and they're into, you know, any other element of golf. And so when I write, you know, I I'm cognizant that I I want to be readable to a larger audience, but I also still want to try to explain in a somewhat intellectual way what what we're talking about with with golf courses and architecture but so i guess my point is it's a the, the market uh, it also dictates how you present your ideas and and that was a very unique smaller niche audience in the 1920s and uh, a smaller niche uh type of educated person who was writing and reading it then
1: you didn't, you didn't. They didn't teach texting at Oxford University.
0: <laughs> yes, but you should see some how well written the texts are there. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. The old English emoji.
1: <laughs> You're right, Derek. Uh, uh, they, uh, texting wasn't. You didn't try to convey your idea in in uh, in five words or less in a text. Uh, I, I'm sure they trained a, a lot uh, deeper in that, and I missed that, and I wish. There are words that sometimes I don't even understand what they write about, and so I miss all of that. And and as our guest today brought up and has talked about the the idea that there was more to write about, there was more to capture. And uh, this book, this book that Josh has put out, the McKinsey Reader, uh, I was fascinated by it, and and I look forward to talking to Josh more about it because. I miss that type of writing and I miss that type of capturing an image, uh, in, in five words or less. Uh, uh, it always seems to be a text or a quick photo and and writing and expressing ideas as Herbert Warren Wynn said, uh, was just trying to get ideas down on the paper for the common man to understand.
0: Yeah, this is, I find this topic to be endlessly interesting because as, as, with my position, what I do, there's, I I, I agree with you, I almost long for a time when the media golf architecture ecosystem was, was small. And, you know, you what, you could deliver something that was more poignant, whereas now, you have magazines, you have people like me doing what I do, you have everybody on Twitter, you have everybody on Instagram, the it's just a constant barrage of, of takes and and imagery and videos and uh, argumentation and, you know, lists and rankings and all this. It's just like, what does it all mean? Where does it go? I mean, you, the good thing is you could take out of that as a consumer what you want, what's interesting to you. You you. It's there. It's out there for you. You know, it's a small, small dose, but there's nothing that is there's very little out there that that feels as substantial as as these books that you mentioned and this book that that Josh has edited and compiled you know this is real, real. this is real heft this is really it, ha, it has a sense of importance and and lasts oh. it's lasting and you know it's just so hard to to get that across in, in the world we live in right now when you have chatter coming at from every angle and there's zero uh, delineation between uh, just any golfer with a with a camera or a social media feed, and you know somebody who gets paid to do it. You know, there's nobody cares. Nobody cares yeah. if if who's where it's coming from. It's just coming. Whereas, yeah, again, just to go back, you know, like the essays in this book are, you know, that McKenzie wrote are just are fascinating. You know, even when he's talking about agronomy and these kind of dry subjects, you know, you feel like. This is important, you know. This is groundbreaking. This is like this is a, like an an ur text that you know needs to be paid attention to.
1: And I'm, I'm I was so uh, I was so enjoy uh, looking forward to reading and enjoying what this new book, the McKinsey Reader, was going to offer me because I have read a lot about in the archives at Passatempo and the archives at the Valley Club, and anywhere I could get my hands on uh, the, the the writings of, of McKinsey. And uh, when I opened this book for the first time, I was like, wow, this reminds me, this reminds me of a book that could have been written in 1915. And I thought, how important will this be for the future, the next 50, 60 years how important is this literature? I was impressed, just totally, uh, Derek. Sorry, I was totally impressed, totally.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's. I think we should just get right into it, and we'll bring Josh Pettit on right now, and find out what drove him to you know want to assemble this book and do all the research that went into find locating and finding these essays and packaging it and presenting it this way and uh there's a there's an interesting story there and no no better place to hear it from josh and let him explain how this all came about because it's really the the book is incredible the McKinsey reader it's it's not all just spirit of saint andrew's chapters it's it's much deeper than that. All so many different periodicals and uh, we'll get a sense on what it took Josh to to locate these and to get the rights to them and, and put it all in one, one place.
1: And it's amazing. He, he was actually, this book was intended to come out back in 2020, I believe Yeah. because of COVID and other things that went on was de- delayed a little bit. So I wonder how many people uh, the intensity of the, of, what was going to come with the book was amped up because we had to wait for so long. So, uh, it was delayed ever so slightly. But when you have a letter, when you, when you have a letter written by Marion E. McKenzie, the daughter, um, and talking about, uh, Alistair, the man, it's impressive because we never really get to know Alistair, the man, the person. Uh, but this book, tends to shed a little more light on it. Pretty
0: cool. Well the good news for Josh is that in the, the time that the original book was supposed to come out and now McKinsey didn't add any writings to it. So he didn't have to he didn't have to locate anything
1: else. <laughs> good but point.
0: It was <laughs> worth a wait. So let's bring
1: on uh Josh Pettit. Here he is. Right. Looking forward to it. Right. I didn't know. I didn't realize you come to Colorado because the last time we spent a lot of time together was at the Valley Club of Montecito. That's right. Which seems like forever ago, Derek. That's how that's how Josh and I met Derek. Valley Club of Montecito. That long ago, but,
2: you know, <laughs> once you look at the calendar, you, you realize, man, that was 15, 16 years ago, 15 years ago.
1: Josh, how old yeah. were you back at the Valley Club?
2: I started there when I was 21. And um, the following year is when we did the project. I guess I would have been 22 at that point.
1: Yeah. Because you, is that when you did all the research? Was uh, Were you still in college when you did the research for that? Correct. And did you do archives? Uh, Derek, uh, I worked with Josh at the Valley Club of Montecito. Right. He had done <clears throat> a lot of the archival work, the photos, the documentation of the work uh, that McKenzie and Hunter did there. Years and years ago. Was that out of college, Josh, or were you still in college?
2: I actually took a sabbatical. So I took a year off of school. I had realized I wanted to pursue a degree in landscape architecture. And so I wasn't in the Land Art program at that time. I was studying political science and history. And, um, you know, I was just really deep into the golf industry scene. I had been working at Meadow Club with Mike DeBreeze doing that project. Cause that's right next to where I grew up. And, uh, so I decided to take a year off, which is when I, it's kind of a funny story, but I worked out that, that deal to go down to Valley club during that year. And that was the first year I was there. And then, um, so I was just full-time at the Valley club, started their archive program, started doing all that research. And then the following year is when I went out to school, um, on the East coast at, University of Massachusetts Amherst started my land art program. And then that following summer, after my first year when I came back, that's when we did our project, the greens project.
1: Yes. Yes. And I couldn't remember if uh, you were a part of the bunker work or you were a part of the green work and it was the greens and greens grounds uh, at the I remember working with you with your little
2: notepad and we, we had a little grid system. And we had charted out, you know, on five foot intervals, elevations, you know, slope percentages yep. and, um, and we were working in, we were using our rakes, you know, pushing rakes and floating it out with my D 0.5 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> <Is there laughs> a,
1: you know
0: what a D 0.5? Not a 0.5. Is, is that like a sh- shovel?
2: <laughs> it's a rake. A rake? It's like a mission yeah. rake.
0: <laughs> Sounds <laughs> about right. Well, Josh, how, so how did you become involved with with the Valley Club? You said you're from Northern California. What I mean, did you just did you contact them and say, "Hey, you know, I'd like to get into your archives and, and, and look through and sort this out"? You need a historian, or like, well, how did that relationship develop?
2: Not quite. I'd heard I'd heard a rumor through the grapevine that you know I'd I'd been working for three years with Mike DeRise at the Meadow Club, and uh, we were doing a McKenzie restoration program there. And I just became just so fascinated with that whole process and fell in love with it. And I'd heard a rumor through the the golf industry that the Valley club was this really cool Alistair McKenzie course in Santa Barbara. Um, and I had some good friends that were going to school at UC Santa Barbara at the time. So I went down and visited for a couple of days and met with the superintendent and was just blown away. You know, he let, let us play. And, um, and so, This would would have been 2004-ish. And then um, the following year, I was kind of thinking of what to do. I knew I wanted to take a year off. And, well, okay, let me back up. I had heard this rumor that the Valley Club had been considering a restoration project. And I thought, with my experience at Metal Club and considering what I wanted to do, it would have been a great opportunity. So um, I sort of finagled my way into doing their quote um, internship program that they did for agronomic students even though i wasn't an agronomy student Um, and worked that out and they let me take that job so i was working on the crew and living there they have these cottages around the pro shop that i that i lived in Um, so once i got there i said well hey what's the deal are are you guys really serious about doing a, a restoration project and the response was pretty much well yeah we've sort of been talking about that for you know, 10 years or so ever since Jim and Tom had done, you know, a a bunker restoration program in the, what, early to mid nineties previously. And that, that was all you guys really did was just sort of address some of the bunkers and all the greens had shrunk. And, you know, there was just like hodgepodge of trees galore. And it was, you know, your typical coastal California um, course that had been, under the, under the uh, green committee tutelage for several decades. And, you know, it was kind of this hodgepodge that needed to be cleared out. And, uh, and so they said, well, yeah, you know, we're kind of thinking about that, um, and I said, well, have you guys done any research, you know, to collect materials, to assist in a (laughs) restoration? No, hadn't done any of that. So I just started doing it on my free time after I was done working on the green screw each day and very quickly started this whole process going, started showing photos. I found all this stuff and, and this you know, was all things out.
0: that you had found in the clubhouse or someplace on property,
2: someplace on property. They had a basement full of boxes of disorganized stuff that no one had looked at for probably 20 years. I started digging through that, hmm. uh, local libraries, uh, different, different libraries in the Montecito and Santa Barbara area. Um, Went down to LA at the time and did some research with Jeff Shackelford, who was very in tune with the. At that time, the Fairchild Aerial Collection was stored at Whittier College in LA, and that was a massive trove of early 1920s and 1930s aerial photographs. And so, started finding aerials there of the of the course right after it had been opened. Um, you know, doing national search, talking to the USGA. Uh, Archivists and other archives around the country, you know, just starting collecting stuff everywhere it took me, you know. So, we started amassing all this material, showing it to the superintendent, the green committee, and saying, Look at, you know, this green was twice the size, or, you know, look at that. And wow, that those two fairways, you know, was just all mowed as a fairway. There was no trees between them. How cool is that? And, you know. So, we started looking at all this stuff and, um, they said, well, let's, let's sort of put together a, a proposal for the membership. So we did that and presented it to a town hall, the membership, this idea of, it was sort of a, a two-pronged, it was, you know, on, on the one hand, we wanted to restore the architectural integrity, of course, that had been lost. And on the other, we wanted to address a lot of agronomic problems because it was built on these very, very heavy clay soils, really nasty. I mean, I've worked in a lot of clay, I know Jim has probably worked in a lot of clay and that was something like the nastiest clay that I've seen. Um, so it was just, you know, the, the, and the greens were built in the native push-up, you know, there were pushup greens built in the native material. So the greens were really, you know, had a lot of agronomic problems. So the idea was sort of address all of this in, in one project. So we put it together in a proposal, membership voted on it approved it. And then, um, And then after that came the time where we sort of had to engage jim and tom and you guys were very busy at that time i don't know if you remember but this was you know 2005 2006 pre-recession and you were i remember building rock creek and doing the planning for old mcdonald i still remember you showing me like one of the original routings of old mcdonald that got changed um, when you did unearthed you know a new section of the property that was buried in gorse and we were looking at the changes but you guys were really busy at that time Good and uh, i just remember it was like sort of a question if you if tom could commit because you were spread pretty thin um so anyway that was a whole process that during that whole process i started compiling all of my research into a, a master plan for lack of a better term and um did that. We sent it to you guys out in Traverse city to look at said, you know, here's all of the stuff that I found is all compiled into a book. And, um, and then the the committee said, well, you know, we need to nail it down. So they finally um, actually the developer of rock Creek um, is a, a member I believe still is of the Valley club. And so the story that I heard was at, at a site visit, he cornered Tom and said, are you going to do our restoration project at the Valley club? <laughs> and Tom said, uh, uh, all right, all right, we're busy, but okay, we'll do it. So that was like, okay, we've got to go ahead from Renaissance. And uh, the membership was on board. And then they passed another thing to basically fund it. Another voting measure they passed to fund the, the project. And um, yeah. And then the following year is when we broke ground.
0: Jim, at that point in time, had you had an opportunity to do any research into the Valley Club on your own? Or or were you just going to Josh and saying, looking at his materials that he produced and he had researched and said, wow, this is incredible. Had no idea that, you know, this golf course existed underneath all these layers.
1: Well, uh, the first project that I was involved with at the Valley Club was the putting green and the first tee. And so that was the first project I did. I rebuilt the putting green in the first tee. and that was that was nineteen that was in the late 1990s. And then we did a bunker restoration program. I did have photos. I still have the photos today in my file of, of uh, photos of the bunkers on almost every hole uh, that uh, either uh, Josh had provided, or Sean McCormick, the former superintendent, had found. And so we would go up to the uh, FedEx store up in, 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 in Santa Barbara and, and copy these photos so I could use in the field. But we were only doing bunkers at the time. And so I was recreating the bunkers with very talented shapers, spent a lot of time there. But I knew working on the bunkers at the Valley Club that, during that time that the greens were sorely, sorely in need of some of work. But they were not going to touch the greens. Uh, they were they were doing okay. Sean McCormick at the time, the superintendent, was trying to nurse the greens through. He was st- having difficulties depending on the season at the Valley Club. So they weren't ready to touch the greens. But I did have photos. I did have photos of bunkers that I restored while working there prior, prior to the greens construction in 2005 and six with Josh. But Josh, I had a booklet. I just had a bag of photos. Josh put the booklet together that described every hole, the original routing that the Valley Club has, how it had changed from the 1930s to what it looked like today. Josh had put that all into a big volume booklet that I stared at uh, during the process of redoing the greens. Mm -hmm. When we we committed... I was uh, involved, and I would come every uh, every so often, about every couple, three weeks, if I remember right. And we would survey the greens with Josh. They would core the greens down, and then we would expand them out. I would shoot the grades with Josh, if I'm not mistaken. We would uh, do the subgrades of the greens, and then the contractor would bring the sand back up to the top. Uh, Josh and the crew and myself, we would approve the greens for seed, and we did that separate of the bunkers. So Josh had just compiled all the photos that I had, put uh, aerials and ground photos and routings, and made it a very informative book, way different than what I used when I originally did the bunkers, restored the bunkers uh, 10 years before that. So it's two Thank different you. projects, two different sets of, of, of uh, informational packets. Mine was just collection of pictures. Josh put it together. I think I still have it in my, my files, a very informative booklet that the the committee could understand the members could understand what had really happened to the greens at the Valley club of Montecito. And
2: and if you recall, Jim, we also during the greens project, we went back and we put some bunkers in that had been lost that had not been put back. You know, I think when you guys were doing your bunker program, the mandate was just to restore the bunkers that were there, but there had been several bunkers that have been lost, like the left side of 13 fairway, the left side of three fairway, um, middle of five fairway, middle of six fairway, which didn't get put back. There's some others left of 11.
1: Um, right of 15 cross bunker right in front of the members team.
2: Yeah. That one. Right so in, and then one in, on 18 as well. There was a, there was two sets on 18, the short set. So, so, That was like, you know, we want to also put back these bunkers that have been lost because so one of the interesting things to note about the Valley Club is um, during World War II they shut down the clubhouse or the the maintenance side of the road. There's a road East Valley Drive runs through the property and it splits it basically into two sections. So you've got the clubhouse side has eight holes on it and the maintenance side has 10 holes on it. Well, that side, the 10 hole side, they closed that down during World War II and they only maintained the eight holes on the clubhouse side. And then they built a tiny little dinky par three right off the 18th tee that they could use as a ninth hole. So they would have nine holes on that side of the road. So um, that, the, the maintenance side of the property went dormant for several years. And when they brought it back, like starting in 1946 under Billy Bella Jr., um, there's just a bunch of bunkers. They didn't bring back, you know, they just, they did sort of the bare minimum. Um, and so, you know, we could see a lot of the landforms were there and we could figure out where they were from the photos. So that was fun. You know,
1: (laughs) Derek, it was, it's the bunkers that members don't like putting in because it affects their game. Uh, the right of 12, the right of 15, all of the bunkers that they didn't let me put in in the first go around were the ones that affected their game. But after Josh had showed them the, com- the composite of all the bunkers that were missing, they allowed me to go back in and restore those bunkers, even though even though they were going to become uh, uh, cannon fire for members who, who didn't want them to be in their line of play because yeah, right. they always hit them. In that direction. That's
0: the it's a tough call. It's, we, sign we of had, a, a well placed bunker is right where you don't want it to be.
2: There, there are some controversial bunkers, and we've gotten squabbles. I remember it was sort of like horse trading. Well, we'll let you do that one, but you can't do this one. Or and so there's a couple that actually we, we still didn't put in. Only a couple that. Um, so at
0: this point, the full authority of Alistair McKinsey is not, hasn't taken hold across the membership yet they, they still know better than McKinsey
2: it's you know it's like say 98.5 percent of the way there
1: correct and that's the problem Derek is that you're always going to have obstacles in these restorations because members own the golf course yes, you're just you're dealing
0: with, with human them. beings
1: yeah you're, you're, <laughs> a, you're a consultant you tell them where they belong and it's up to them it's their club it's not your club it's not Josh's club it's their club so you do the best that you can do you 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 shine the light on the the architecture and then you let them decide and thankfully with Josh's book after we did the bunkers initially and when we redid the greens we also changed the mowing presentation that really helped so uh, Josh's book was a composite of all of the information put together to lead us to the next to the 98.5 percent.
0: Yeah. Josh, I love this idea that that you were there in the early 2000s and nobody had looked in these boxes for 20 years and you could still go to uh, local libraries and find uh, images and resources that were helpful to you that nobody else to that point had apparently gone looking for or thought to look for. It, it, it strikes me, you know, there's something very romantic about being back in that time period when there are still these great... I guess you could call them discoveries to be made about a, a course as significant as the Valley Club. But it strikes me as that era is over now. Uh, I, I don't know how many clubs of that stature uh, ha- haven't been picked over yet. You know, I don't know how many attic boxes there are at a great club that ha- that some archivist or historian hasn't gone through. There was something that must have been something kind of pure and beautiful in that era where the internet is is definitely a, a thing. It's viable. It's big. But it's nowhere near what it is now. You know, not everything had been digitized. The Not every uh, aerial had been uploaded onto some website, you know, where you can access it. So that, that must have been a—do a, you—let me ask you this in your research now, do you ever get that same type of rush of discovery or is it, has, is everything already kind of out there and you just have to locate it now, you know, or have to just, uh, connect to it?
2: No, I mean, you're, you're sort of exactly right there. There is a romanticism to that process. It's, um, like when you're trying to track something down and then you find something, it's almost like this Indiana Jones moment you know, you like, you find something and it's like, wow, that's incredibly, you know, incredible discovery. Um, generally speaking, you're true, but not as much as you might think. I mean, yeah, the internet is as far as, you know, from an archivist standpoint, the tools that are available today, the digitization of a lot of these archives and these libraries, it's far and away better now than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But you'd be surprised. There is still an enormous amount of material that has not been digitized. I mean, we're talking old material, you know? And so to this day, I still will go to libraries, you know, where I know that they have a hard copy of some golf magazine from 1926 that does not exist anywhere on the internet. And it's like in there, in the stat. I mean, UC Berkeley, not not too far from my office here has a phenomenal archive with, uh, all sorts of stuff that's not digitized. Um, and, and there's also stuff that, uh, so, and then you find that like another great example is the LA 84 archive, Correct. um, in Los Angeles, they have an amazing, and I've done a lot of work with those guys. They've been very helpful to me in my research. There's a ton of stuff that they have that's not digitized. Um, there are also a ton of aerial photographs that aren't digitized. So, you know, you just got to know, like, the, the processes by by conducting the research are um are are always evolving, but it's um it's sort of a it's sort of a trick. You sort of figure out different tricks and I, I sort of have my tricks and all the researchers that I know, we all kind of have our own tricks. And um but it, it's it's not as easy as just like going into Google nowadays and just, okay, let's see what I can find on Google and that's everything. There's there's oftentimes way more stuff I mean, I can think of a lot of stuff that's, I know for a fact is not digitized, Um, but maybe the best example um, of what you, what you're talking about was for me anyway, in my quote unquote research career um, was in 2013, I found the plan that Alistair McKenzie drew for a part three course at Augusta national that never got built on the same piece of land where the par three course is today. It's a 20 acre plot of land. Um, But he designed an 18 hole reversible routing par three course. And I had seen references to that plan in some correspondence. And so I was pretty sure it existed or had existed at some point, but no one had ever seen it, at least not in decades, um, or probably since it had been drawn. And I was working with an archivist at the Frederick Law, Frederick Law Olmsted archive in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is actually run by the national park service, it's a phenomenal archive on Frederick Law Olmsted's work and Olmsted did a lot of work, his firm, the Olmsted brothers firm. At that point, his two sons ran it. They did a lot of work with golf developments, including Augusta, Pasatiempo. Damon's hall. Hall. I mean, they, they have a massive database of a lot of golf related properties that they were affiliated with. Uh, they would often do the land planning, not the golf course design, but they'd sort of do everything but the golf course yep. and they'd work with the architects. So they would have copies of all these plans that all those architects were doing of the course. And so they have a massive archive of Augusta national related materials. Well, working with the archivist there, Michelle, for, months and months she finally sent me in those days this was not that long ago 2013 so nine years ago she was sending me cds in the mail with scans of stuff that she was finding and then one day in the mail i get a cd and it's got Mackenzie's plan of the part three course on it and it was just like an aha moment you know that was just that was very thrilling did you and you did not
0: know that was going to be on that cd you just came across it Clicking through yeah. the images and you know, you're like, the, "Whoa, holy
2: shit!" Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was just like jaw dropped. Like, I mean, that was the coolest thing I've I found. You know, I found some cool stuff, but that was like
0: that just makes you think, yeah, like what else is out there that is just sitting? You know, that's just such a, a tantalizing thought about something that's sitting, you know, in a in a folder, in a binder, in a box that
2: nobody knows it's I'll give you there. Another great example. Um, a good friend of mine is the chairman on the green committee at um, well, he's on the board, I guess, but he ran the project, he spearheaded the project at Lake Merced to do their recent project with Gil Hans. And we've been talking for several years leading up to this about, you know, McKenzie's influence at Lake Merced, because McKenzie renovated all the bunkers there. So he had been doing research and somebody, I forget how he, he got in contact with the person, but um this woman who I think she's in her seventies or eighties now was the daughter of the golf pro who was the pro there in the early thirties. She found this photo album that had been under a bed for like 70 years of all these Lake Merced photos, no one had seen. And she somehow got in contact with them and Hey, are you guys interested? You know, I don't know what this is, but like, is this something you're interested in? And they got it and it is like unbelievably cool. And it's like a lot of these photos were colorized. They they brought them to an artist in that day, black and white photos, obviously, that they had an artist colorized. So there were these beautiful colorized photos from the 1930s in this photo album. So there's just stuff like that all over the place, like way more than you could ever imagine. Way more. Need to be found. And And the sad reality is most of it, you know, the vast majority of it probably never will be located or put into the hands of people who know what it is. You know, yep. a- another great example, I'll give you real quick. The, um, Jim probably knows there was two routing maps done for the Valley club. The first one is slightly different 17th and 18th hole are flipped. And there's some other characteristics of the course that are different. That first routing map was drawn by a guy named Edward nickel. And since literally since 2005, I'd been looking for this guy you know, trying to find his relatives on, on, uh, like, you know, the family tree software website and, you know, tracking down and it's, it's hard. Like I've I spent a lot of time doing that. you're trying to track down relatives, second, third generation people that are related to these different players. And I finally found, well, so what I found out was this guy was an architect who did a bunch of drawings for McKenzie and Hunter in those days it was based in Berkeley. And I finally found his daughter, who is like 87 years old, lives in Arinda, which is not too far from here in the East Bay. Right. And um, I finally tracked her down. This was like just before COVID, so 2019. And met with her, told her I'd been looking for her for essentially like 14 years at that time. And she like couldn't believe it, you know. And oh yeah, my my father was this architect and he had this great career and you know let me you know let me pull up he, he had written this book of memoirs where he talks about his whole career and he has a section in there talking about him working with mackenzie and hunter how he did these drawings for eight different courses in california whoa and and so i'm asking her like you know w- what happened what happened to all that stuff i mean my 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 working theory for several years was like this guy would have had a trove of Mackenzie notes and sketches and correspondence and all photos, all sorts of stuff. And, uh, she said, Oh, you know, when he died in the, I think it was early sixties, early to mid sixties, we cleaned out everything, threw it all away. There's tons and tons of stuff, just drawers and drawers full of plans and (laughs) all sorts of stuff. We threw it all away. And I was just like, heartbreaking you know it's because I, I just I can't see you there was a ton of stuff that got thrown away and that's just the reality that yeah just to,
0: between that you know things are lost to time you know people die things get discarded all the all the clubhouse fires uh, at golf courses across the country all the all those addicts that got burned down like
2: yeah it's that's one of the most common stories you always hear uh the clubhouse burned down in the 50s and we yep, lost the office. we lost it
0: well this is a good put play- Sorry, this is a good point, Josh, to kind of transition of research into the McKinsey Reader. Was working at the Meadow Club near where you grew up, was that your first introduction to McKinsey? Is that where that spark uh, was ignited? And then did your work at uh, the Valley Club doing that kind of research turn you on even more? Or like, what's the backstory of, of you taking on this pretty substantial project of assembling all of McKinsey's writings in one place?
2: Yeah, well, um, you know, generally sort of covered it. It's, it's, you're right. Yeah. I, I first got interested working at the metal club. You know, I got hired on the, as a, just working on the construction crew under the superintendent working with Mike DeVries. And, um, you know, I was just doing like picking shovel work, you know, and uh, swinging a shovel and, laying sod and pushing sand around with a rake and you know installing irrigation drainage just kind of grunt work but it was like I loved it you know that's that was um, I had worked on golf courses previously to that you know starting when I was 15 um not metal club but other courses in my area and I had done some construction and maintenance work. So I really just enjoyed working on a crew. But I I didn't really know you know anything about McKenzie. I didn't know anything about McKenzie at that time. Um, and all of a sudden this guy, Mike debris shows up and I'm like, well, who's that? And they're like, well, you know, he's our consulting architect. He's helping us restore this McKenzie course. And I said, well, okay. And I got interested in that. Um, I've always had an interest in architecture. My, my father's an architect, you know, structural architect. So I've always had an interest in design and as a golfer, I had sort of an interest in golf design, but didn't really know anything and didn't know anything about McKenzie. So that whole process of working with Mike and looking at like, well, why are we doing this? You know, okay, we're expanding the screen. We're restoring this bunker. We're doing this. And that just got me interested in that whole process. And then like we talked about that translated me that translated into me working at the Valley club a couple of years later doing that whole project. And that's when I first got really into doing all the research, you know, collecting all the historical material to aid in that process. And so, since then since 2005 i just continually i've always just done research in my free time you know um as much as i can you know i've probably spent thousands of hours doing research over the last you know 15 16 17 years and just collecting material and um without really knowing what i was going to do with it all um just i enjoyed the process and um and so anyway, uh, starting in like 2017 I'd say is when I I'd been thinking about some ideas for some books, a couple different concepts and that's when I sort of formulated the idea of Mackenzie Reader compiling all this material into a book um, because I thought I thought there'd be an audience you know I wasn't sure how big but I, I thought there would be an audience that would be interested and so um, yeah, I spent several, you know, I spent like three years basically putting that book together.
0: Was it just a situation where you realized that his writings were spread out? You know, you have a a couple books that he wrote, but there's an essay in, you know, golf illustrated or the, you know, some other publication here. And it just didn't, there was no basically landing place for someone to go and experience all of his writings, and by the way, the, the book is is gorgeous. the The illustrations are are great. the The guest essays are terrific. I mean, it's the book itself is is really beautiful. It's a it's a must have Thank if you, you like golf course architecture. But it was that the the impetus of just saying like, like let's get all of this together? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I, I and there's a lot of other stuff that's not in that book. I, I couldn't fit it all into a book. That was one of the challenges. Actually, was was paring it down and making it fit into a book. Um, I purposely didn't want it to be a coffee table book. So I wanted it to fit in sort of small portable format. And um, yeah, my thinking was like, you know, wow. You know, I, I just, I like Mackenzie's style of writing. I, I know some people don't, but I, I really like his style of writing and um, a lot of the material is I think really interesting. Some of it is, is redundant with some of his other, you know, with, spirit saint andrews or his first book golf architecture but um a lot of it's not and and then i thought well you know this this material has been presented in some places but it's never been presented with like the photos to match with the routing plans to go with it and if i could put all that stuff together it would make for like a very interactive experience where you're able to read his writings same time see these beautiful photographs of projects he was working on and see the routing maps of the course so for the golf architecture nerd sort of this interactive experience and nothing like that existed so um i thought there might be an audience and
1: uh, why not me derek he said josh said why not me why shouldn't i do
0: this thing's not going to do itself
1: (laughs) if not me then who derek and josh this is um, this is via Zoom. This is the amount of info of photos of Valley Club and Paso Tempo. Of By the way, he's I holding just, up
0: a, re, a literal ream of black and white photographs that's about two inches, three inches thick.
1: Plus notes from Bob Beck, plus notes from the Valley Club. Oh, Bob, is, Bob is a fantastic guy. And so. Derek, we have Josh, to exp- explain
2: who Bob Beck is.
1: Bob Beck is the club historian who I worked with at the Pasa Temple Club for the last 20 years. And now Emily Chopa has taken over for him. But thousands and thousands and hours you can keep reading. And I can't believe Josh put this all together in a McKinsey reader. Where would you start with that, Derek? And where? <laughs> That's a coffee you- table book that's i mean it's just amazing and what derek what josh didn't tell you derek is that when you do research when you do research you find stuff from other golf courses that you never thought you would find and you don't you go put that somewhere and when you're doing research for another golf course you find stuff from the one you're looking for and you put that somewhere help josh put that exactly on there. Right. It. it's impressive i' it's found never that- a straight
2: line it's never <laughs> It's never a straight line. Like the, if you were like, try to, you know, graphically show your research never. trail, it's it's zigzag the entire way.
1: And I'm so impressed what Derek, what Josh put together. Cause when I was doing research for the Lido, the stuff I found on uh, Thomas at uh, Riviera at Bel Air, uh, I found all kinds of golf courses. I found out about that. People didn't know about routings for the Broadmoor Golf Club that they never even seen before. And I found all this information while doing work for the Lido. And then that aha moment, that photo pops out of a file cabinet that, oh, nobody's ever seen this photo before. And so those are those lines that Josh somehow put all together. And I got to ask this, Josh. I I just got to ask this. You couldn't have slept very much for two or three years compiling all this information because you just don't know how to put it down. You, you can't put it down. Am I correct?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, you're, you're correct. You're correct. Um, yeah, it was, uh, well, there were sort of different stages to the process. So compiling it all was sort of a stage and then kind of formatting it and they sort of merged into each other. So, once I started formatting everything, then it was kind of going back and taking stuff out and adding other stuff. And, um, but no, you're, you're right. Yeah. It was a, uh, you know, many, many l- very long nights at the office and, uh, because you just, yeah, golf, it's, it's, it's,
0: um, well, the, the, it's thrilling to do research. Like, you know, a door opens, like you just said, Jim, like maybe two doors open and you can only go down one at a time. So now you go to, and then you take that as far as it goes and maybe a few more doors open and then you got to reverse out and go follow that, that first door, other door, you know, and it just, if you're onto a, onto a streak or you're onto a trail of something, it, it can be intoxicating. You don't want to, to your point, you don't want to stop. You got to see where it goes.
1: I see where it goes. And that's why I was impressed with Josh's part, uh, articles in the McKinsey Reader about agro- agronomics. I didn't know that McKinsey was working with uh, a Berkeley uh, uh, agronomic people from Berkeley who did special uh, articles for him about bent grasses and fescue. I would have never known that until I started reading the Paso Tempo uh, archives that Emily shared with me. I mean, McKinsey's Talking about Cypress Point and tempo and having Berkeley professors doing research for him, you never read about that in in uh, golf architecture book. Never did. Like
2: soil samples and all sorts of agronomic analysis, and you know, yeah, it's actually pretty impressive.
1: It's impressive, Derek, and you would have never knew that part of McKenzie. And I'm so glad Josh wrote that in the McKenzie reader because. I read it, but I didn't think anybody would be interested. But the way Josh formatted it and wrote it in the book, I thought it was very interesting. And people see that there's more than just standing and pointing at a finger at a bunker and a green. It's about the agronomy of the golf course, and and Josh went down that, that down that road is impressive.
2: I think a lot of people, yeah, like you know, the focus on McKenzie is always it was a brilliant router of a piece of property, you know, maybe the best router ever, you know, I can make an argument. Um, and you know, he built these amazing greens and these amazing bunkers, yeah. but, um, yeah. And so that sort of obscures all this other stuff that he was actually pretty knowledgeable about, you know, agronomics. And for me, I, I really enjoy his talk about economics. You know, he was sort of an amateur economist and he wrote a lot about economics and, and all these things are really intertwined, you know, the, the design, the construction, the agronomics, the operations, the maintenance of a course, they're all intertwined, um, with the economics. And so, you know, he wrote a lot about that and, and then also the camouflage angle, which he writes a lot about. And I know people are aware of that, but if you, you know, there is a ton of other camouflage stuff I couldn't include in the book because there was just too much, but, um, he, he was, he was, uh, as passionate about just the study of camouflage independent of golf design as he was golf itself.
1: And Derek, he wrote uh, articles for golfdom and other magazines at that time sharing his experiences. And again, that's why I'm impressed with this McKinsey reader, Derek, is because you can get these golfdom articles and these magazines from the twenties and teens, but to put it all together for somebody to, to uh, talk about McKinsey in the way that josh did that's what's so impressive is that it's all out there and it's so much information how do you get it to the people who would enjoy reading it and i think he did a great job great job well thank you jim
0: when you read McKinsey there's no doubt that you're reading the thoughts of an intellectual uh, somebody who's an artist somebody who's progressive somebody who is uh pushing into new territory he happens to be a golf course architect but he, he the way he writes and and the 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 argumentation he brings to his point of view and the, and the wit it's clear that that he is operating on a very high intellectual art, artistic level and i was just telling jim a little while ago i i my i have a flaw in that i, I sometimes look at golf design in the 19 teens and 20s and think that of it i don't want to say simplistic but techno- technically they weren't getting to the point that they would get to in later decades they were they were still feeling their way around to some degree uh, they didn't have access to the same types of as for all of the great you know research that berkeley did on turf grasses and and fertilizers and uh, greenkeeping and and planting a golf course in the 1920s was still a crapshoot you know there are a lot of issues that would have to be remedied later when different technologies came along but that's that's a flaw in my thinking is because at the same time you have this incredible artistic and creative drive that's animating design and, and architecture and these people that are that are pushing it into new territories and it's no different than uh uh, painting at in the nineteen teens and twenties. You know, we we don't think of painting or or, co- or music composition or ballet for, in these uh, these other arts from this time period as as being primitive in any sense. We're always thinking like this is these are fresh new movements that are emerging. These are artistic uh, starbursts that are coming out every every ten years, and then somebody else is changing it and doing this. And uh, I think when you read McKinsey, you do get a sense that. He is constantly thinking forward his what made me think of this is your comment about the camouflaging and, and like how how scientific and intellectual and creative that is and it's an it, he brought that in a very I think other architects under kind of understood that in some way but the way he presents his ideas and they're almost full formed compared to just an instinct is has to be admired as as truly artistic and, and revolutionary do you think and I know we're talking about McKinsey do you think that McKinsey was on another level or you know were were, were Thomas and uh, Tillinghast and Ross capable of of operating in this sort of intellectual environment that McKinsey so
2: obviously is when you read these essays? Well, it's interesting that you just use the word revolutionary because I was just going to say a minute ago he wrote somewhere um that something to the effect of, you know, he had like the spirit of a revolutionary. And you could just that's sort of an insight into his personality. Mm. Um but um I, you know I don't want to get into like a a preferential debate over, you know, do you like CB McDonald or Alex McKenzie or George Thomas? You know, these were all very different characters and they had, you know, different um different pathways into this what became this industry of golf design. Um, you know, uh, y- you could put others in, in that mix as well. Harry Colt, I think was, I think Harry Colt was brilliant and very influential actually on McKenzie and his thinking, um, Tom Simpson as well. You know, I, I think, uh, I don't think he gets talked about enough. Um, I think he's, he's one of the best in, in my opinion ever. Um, George Thomas was phenomenal, but, you know, he had pretty limited uh, portfolio. You know, he didn't do a ton of projects, um, but the stuff he did was fantastic. Um, It's hard. It's hard to, I can't say like, you know, one's better than the other. Um, It's just that McKenzie,
0: you know, you just get such a vivid sense of, of the way his mind works and his, his points of view and this constant drive toward originality and toward this this idea, this ideology that he has about golf course design. And you definitely like, you know, you mentioned Colt, uh, Jim loves to quote Thomas uh, and, and some other really, really Simpson, great writing. But I guess I, I'm saying like McKinsey seems the most whole to me. And especially when you, when you read this, this book that you've compiled, you know, you just get this very vivid sense of, of the dynamism of of his, of his mind and his thinking about golf design in a way that you get nibbles at from other people and then oh, uh, you can also yeah. i'll actually i'll step back and let, let you comment on that
2: i don't to well, i was just gonna say you know um what, one thing i would say on this is um and some people might take umbrage but i, I think by by and large uh McKenzie was more he had more of an influence on the world of golf around the world and that was a product of the fact that he was of all those guys we mentioned the guy that traveled the most you know, he was like, um, in the intro to the book, I referred him as a golf expeditionary And, and he was traveling from, you know, the UK and Ireland to Australia, to New Zealand, to California, the States, all over the States, you know, South America back and forth. And so he traversed the globe building all these golf projects. Whereas all those other guys were much more confined in, in certain regions, you know, like Donald Ross, mainly the East coast kind of did all pretty much most of his stuff, you know, Tillinghast, has by and large, mostly East coast. Um, you know, so these guys didn't have as far of a reach around the world. So I think that was one of the differentiating factors is, you know, Mackenzie's influence was felt on four continents and in, in places like Australia, um, there, there wasn't a lot pre McKenzie. I mean, McKenzie had an enormous impact on golf in Australia, you know, starting from the time he went there to work on the, the new world of Melbourne course. Um, and that influenced, I think a couple of generations of golf development after him. Um, and then South America, you could say the same thing, you know, there, there was a, there was a golf culture in Argentina, um, because of the British, but you know, it was still, kind of rudimentary at that point. And so McKenzie went down there and built the jockey club, two courses for the jockey club and did several other projects. And, um, I think that had a massive influence on, on golf development and the world of golf in, in South America. So, um, I just think he had, he had a, he had a further reach than, than all those other guys. Not that those guys weren't brilliant and talented in their own right.
1: And Derek, I I, I have to ask this to Josh because of all of his research and and I have this debate with a lot of people and I'd love to hear Josh's take on this. Was McKenzie, would McKenzie have been McKenzie without Hunter? Would McKenzie have been McKenzie without Morecambe? Would McKenzie been McKenzie without Maxwell? Josh, you got to answer that for me. Well,
2: the answer is, is both yes and no. I mean, yeah, yes, I would say he, he would, but I think you're hitting on something that he had a knack for. He had this very, in my mind, impressive ability to travel to a new region where he wasn't very familiar and find these people somehow, you know, Hunter sort of found him, but, um, he was able to connect with these people and he was able to work with them to impl- implement his ideas on these projects when he was long gone. In a lot of cases he would never come back. Correct. And, um, as Jim knows, I mean, it's, it's a lot like the, the scene today, but you know, the technology of the communications technology is anything like it is now, but you, you're, you're going from project to project and you have a different associate leading a project and they're the man on the ground responsible for trying to implement your ideas and not just your ideas, but, you know, a combination of your and their ideas. And so that's why you get this distinction between McKenzie's work in Australia versus his work in the West coast of California with Hunter versus his work in the Midwest, the East coast with Perry Maxwell, um, down in South America, he had Luther Koontz was his guy on the ground who was head work for Wendell Miller. Wendell Miller, Wendell, Wendell Miller was a prominent golf contractor based out of Chicago that did the construction work for Augusta Bayside, a lot of other projects. And, um, his guy, Luther Queens went down to South America with McKenzie, but yeah, McKenzie had this, he had this knack for, for finding these guys and sort of training them and not, not like being, um, dictatorial with his ideas, but, you know, this sort of, you know, they they would have to work together to implement his ideas. And, uh, that's a very, very difficult thing to do, to find those talented people. And so I guess if the question is, could McKenzie's work have turned out as well as it, as it turned out without those guys, the answer would be no. You know, those guys were, very, very responsible for the way that for the quality in which a lot of those projects turned out. Um, but when McKenzie still had been brilliant at routing a property and coming up with a concept for a green complex or, you know, figuring out uh, a bunker schematic, but yeah, that was, that was him. I mean, he was brilliant at that stuff and, and, you know, he would have been, he would have been, um, I think successful, he would have found a way to be successful, even if it weren't for those guys, I think he would have found other ways. Maybe the work, I mean, for sure the work wouldn't have been the same. It would have turned out slightly different.
1: Yeah. But um, he would have found other guys.
2: I, I think so, yeah. And, and, and it wasn't, I mean, those are the main guys, but, you know, he like. Fleming, he, Fleming. He found, he found a couple of guys from Ireland, you know, yep. Patty Cole. and Patty Cole. Um, yep. And uh, a couple Fleming. of the other guys. Let and he brought them over and yeah. trained them. And these guys didn't know anything. And he trained them to basically build bunkers and build greens. Yeah. And they were phenomenal at it. You know, he, 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 had, he had a way of, like, bringing out the inner artist in all of these guys.
1: Because, Derek, if you look at the drawings of Pasa Temple, if you took the drawings that McKenzie actually drew at Pasa Temple, the elevation changes on the greens, you could not build those greens today that way. You couldn't have built them that way back then is that the artistry josh that mckenzie gave hunter to carry out his ideals and to tone him down or if he'd have drawn him flat would they'd have been boring and 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 not relevant
2: well my theory on this is so if, if you're like for example if if you're looking at the pasta tipo green sketches yes yeah say as an example, or the Augusta National Greens sketches or some of these other, you know, my theory on this is that, you know, those are not exact drawings. They're not, not even close. They're not the engineered spec drawings. and No. Um, because there wasn't the technology to, to build stuff using that methodology in those days. So my theory is that he would sort of exaggerate the features on the page to make them stand out. So that the, whoever was looking at them, it would like trigger in their head, okay, yeah, that's got to be a landform. You know, that's got to transition this way into this landform. And, and then it was their responsibility to figure out actually how to make it work, how to fit in the ground, wherever they were working, wherever that green site was. But there's no, you're not copying elevations, you know, and working off of a grid and, oh, this has got to be, you know, one and a half tenths higher or lower or something like that. It's, it's, I, again, he, he trained these guys, he figured out a methodology that worked and was able to train these guys to look at these sketches. They would talk about it and then they would use that as sort of, uh, you know, the suggestion for what this should be. And then it was up to them to figure out how to actually make it work and function.
0: There's something there's something like expressionistic about those green drawings. I mean, you oh. you can. T- I mean, it's obvious they're not technical drawings. You know, right. there's a there's an artist's point of view in the illustration and, and the the pencil strokes and that. So I think that's a ver- a very keen observation. But Jim, I was I was going to ask you this, Jim. So speaking of pasta tiempo, when you look at those green sketches, and then you go out on, you know, the second green right now. Is there any correlation between what exists on the ground today and something that you you could trace back to those green sketches? And I'm sure it's different for different greens, but
1: <clears throat> it is, it is. Uh, and Josh knows this as well as anybody. He made the point exactly right. They're exaggerated. <clears throat> the second green drawing for Posit Temple is exaggerated off of Posit off of Mackenzie's handwriting. <clears throat> the tenth green, uh, the the. The greens go on and on and on. They're exaggerated. The contours and the movements are there. But even today, those greens have changed so much. Even I don't believe that McKenzie would realize how much they've changed. And so from pencil sketch and idea to implementation and to evolution and where they sit today, they are so far removed from how they were presented back in 1929, and so Jim, it's
2: tough. are you saying, Jim, that they've evolved specifically that they've evolved from the condition they were in when they were first actually built and finished?
1: Yes, or that they're just
2: different from the original sketches both. from what Mackenzie was envisioning. You know, it's both. It's both,
1: both. definitely. Yes, for sure. They, they both right. have. They've done both. They've evolved from uh, McKenzie's original sketches. They've evolved from the original construction of Robert Hunter Jr. Hunter and Robert Hunter Jr. at Pasatiempo. So the evolution continues. And it will continue uh, for as long as a golf course uh, is, is, is uh, maintained and mowed and top dressed, it will continue. So Derek, to answer your question, From initial thought to where they sit today, so much has transpired, both uh, architecturally and uh, agronomically. It's unbelievable. When
0: you begin your your big project there, what do you use as a guideline? What do you have? What resources do you have? Because you have these these drawings, which can't be built. Uh, You might have some photographs, but, you know who knows what the photographs are and what you can really depict off a photograph. So what do you use as your, as your text, so to speak to when you're going to reconstruct these screens? He's holding up a, a,
1: a (laughs) I have show, I'm showing you a photo of the 18th green from behind the green. There's a parking lot up there now. That's correct. If you look at the green, if you look at the photo, there is texture, and shading in that green. It is so much different than Mm -hmm. what it is today, it's unbelievable. And uh, Josh and I could debate and have beers and drink until the sun comes up about the contours of the 18th green, how they were originally drawn, how they were originally built, what they look like today. This photo speaks volumes of the four compartments at Pasa Temple that used to be there that are no longer there.
2: Well, you're right. We, yeah, we, we, we could debate, uh, (laughs) stuff, but do you think that, I I mean, stating the obvious here, agronomics play a huge role in, in what, in what you have to do, you know, green speeds. Um, my, my preference is that people focus more on firmness than speed. But you know, out here on the West Coast California, that idea is catching on, but it's still the focus amongst these memberships is generally speed and they're not thinking in terms of firmness. My my thoughts about Pausa Tampo greens, is, you know, people a lot of people think that they're too severe. I don't think they're too severe. I think if, I think if Pasta Tempo's greens were bent grass and they were firm, really firm, and they were only at 10. On the stimp 10 10 and a half on the stimp, i think they'd be phenomenal it'd be very playable it uh, was
1: absolutely the correct.
2: POA is if when you have poa you want to do a lot to poa to keep it rolling well because poa is just you always is very bumpy you always have to mow it. you always have to roll it and so by the by the product of of maintaining poa, you kind of end up with these speeds that are more 11 and a half 12 12 and a half range but if you had bent grass greens that were really firm and maintain it only a 10 on stint. And you could do that with only mowing two days a week. And they'd be incredibly playable. And he
1: is absolutely correct. You wouldn't have
2: to sacrifice a lot of the, in my opinion, the severity of some of those, what people think are severe greens. Jim, are yep. you
0: using bent?
1: Uh, I can't say. I <laughs> <You> can't say. Because <laughs> we haven't selected the culture okay. yet. But, but Josh is right on, he, Josh is spot on. Josh is spot on. Yeah. Bent, Bent's uh, spot on. That's all I can tell you. Spot on. Firmness, uh, uniformity, texture. Those are all the things that Mackenzie talked about, Derek, when he uh, enlisted those Berkeley uh, professors to find a grass that was applicable to the coast of California. And, and n- nowhere, actually, it does say one time it talks about pola. Josh knows that because he read the same thing I read, that it does talk a little bit about POA, but most of the research that McKenzie had prescribed for the coastal properties of California were bents and fescues, and that's, what, that's the plan, bents and fescues.
2: Yeah, it was, it was agrostis, agrostis palins and agrostis maritima were the predominant bent strains in those days, and that's what they used yep. mostly everywhere. They, they actually didn't use really fescue, at least on, on coastal California in those days. It was just all bent grass, right?
1: That's right. That's right. But, and, and, and everything that Josh has said about having bents and having firm grass is, is, is all important and trying to maintain pola, which is, it just happens. It gets bumpy. Uh, You're trying to, to eliminate the bumps. So the speed goes up, the, the, all of those things that detract from the coolness of greens of, of Mackenzie's age uh, uh, are become a factor. Absolutely correct.
2: And uh, and this is where you can make a a direct a direct connection between the agronomic regimen and the economics of a golf operation. So if you if you're maintaining poa annua and you're having to mow them seven days a week, which is generally what they do, six seven days a week, and verticut them very often and top dress them frequently and uh, roll them all the stuff they need to do to keep them smooth and rolling, you know, up to the standards of the membership, there's a huge economic implication from all of that. But if you have bent grass greens that you're maintaining, you're only having to mow them say two days a week and you don't want to verticut them. Um, you don't want to airify them if you can avoid it. Um, you know, the Valley club hasn't core airified their greens, since we built those in 2007 and they're the best amongst the best greens I've ever seen anywhere.
1: That's right.
2: So there's a huge economic connection between, uh, you know, the agronomics and the operation, the maintenance and the operation of the golf course.
1: Absolutely Derek. And that's the thing that you have to keep uh, uh, in mind when you're doing these projects is cost to do. uh, I mean, McKenzie must talk about it a thousand times in Josh's book and all of the books he's written, the economics of golf course, the economy of golf, uh, how to make it uh relatively easy to maintain with five guys instead of 25 guys. But it's the perception. Yeah. It's, the, it's the perception of what people say is good. And Good is green in most people's perception. I don't see it that way. Fast is good in most people's perception. I don't see it that way. And uh not having the ability to to uh, uh, to uh, have it uh, perfect every day. We don't have seasons anymore, Derek. We always have the same season every day, three hundred and sixty five days a year. We gotta have seasons. We've got to have slow green some year, some parts of the year, and fast green some parts of the year, dependent on the temperatures. We don't have that anymore, and I continue to preach that over and over and over.
0: Well, some clubs just have so so much money that they can afford to have a seasonless golf year, or they can't afford to have twenty five members on the crew if they could find
2: labor now. But
0: in a, it typically. Well,
2: and, and- Mackenzie was writing about this, you know, there was examples, even in his day, you know, in the early 1920s, late teens, early twenties, where he's talking about Macrohanish and how yeah. Macrohanish had become popular all of a sudden. And so these golf tourists in those days were traveling there. And so the club was flush with money.
1: <laughs> and that
2: was the worst thing that ever happened to the club because they started having all this money and they started thinking we need to spend it all yep. on doing more and more to the golf course. And it's like, you know, the dog trying to chase its own tail. It, it, you, you just never run out of stuff to spend money on. And the golf, the condition of the golf course actually deteriorated when they started doing all that stuff. Yep. Yep. And that's right. uh, that so often is the case now, you know, resources are great to have, but if they're, if they're not guided in an efficient manner, then uh, oftentimes you're actually just creating more work for yourself.
1: I agree. So i got to ask you this question, Josh. It drives me nuts, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Mackenzie wrote, and you have brought him back to life again in your McKenzie reader. Mackenzie was prolific in his writings. Why did Mackenzie become such a strong spokesman? And why did that era of being a strong spokesman stop? in my opinion, with Dallas to McKenzie.
2: Being a strong spokesman for, I mean an advocate for a certain agenda or?
1: For everything, for architecture. Golf course for architecture. Agronomics, for what ha- what agronomics. Happened,
0: what happened to golf architecture literature?
1: Yeah, what happened to it? How come there's not a new McKenzie writing today in 2022? Why is your book so important for us to, to look at and why isn't there a new guy talking about the golf? In uh, your opinion, in your opinion. Well,
2: I think if you were to trace the answer, it would lead to discussions about politics, generally. Club politics, industry politics. Um, you know, Tom experienced this, you know, when he came out with the confidential guide, early 90s and it was incredibly controversial you know he was pretty outspoken and and uh that um that irked a lot of people um i think ultimately that worked actually to his advantage but um yeah he encountered you know club politics and industry politics and i think there's a lot of people that are just weary of being so outspoken um yeah,
1: it's
2: it's uh, um, it's easier to go.
1: Answer? Yeah, it's. I know it's a hard. I I hated to spring it on you. I thought you might have had a revelation while you were doing your research. It's a tough one. I just well, I've debated, I think part of the with,
0: reason is because you ha- have to. And I'm sorry to interrupt, Jim. <laughs> that was that's true. right. Uh, that's right. But you know, golf for since the probably the 60s, golf course architecture has become become such a promotional business. You know, you have media companies. You have people in your office that that are, are always promoting your, your 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 product. So, in Mackenzie's time, sure, I'm sure there was some sort of marketing or promotion aspect to it. But, I mean, he and his contemporaries are writing these essays for trade publications, for knowledge to to uh, to to report their findings and on different turf grasses. They're advocates for certain. Uh, points of view on design. They really believe this stuff. Whereas you get into, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, if you get, a, if you get uh, anything written by an architect, they're just trying to promote their own book of business. And so they're not going to lay out anything that's highly controversial. To Josh's point, they're not going to stick their neck out for any idea you're just going to like try try to you know talk about what they did on this one project and that has that's not very interesting to to read when you're comparing it to these treatises where these people are putting this intellectual thought and rigor in, into their writings um there are a couple people you know like obviously Tom is one person that's been a prolific writer um i think there are other people who speak eloquently about golf course architecture like Mike Mike Clayton would be another person who isn't afraid Absolutely. to to advocate, to actually, you know, put his beliefs out there. But yeah, Shackelford's another one. Yeah, Shackelford's always always been been very <laughs> cut to the bone. And, yeah, but,
1: <laughs> that's a good description.
0: But yeah, and but for the most part, it's not in, it's not in any designer's interest to go deep into their design philosophy or to ruffle feathers. It's just it's not part of the it's, it's there's no upside I think
2: to that. I would say probably another component is that. I think Mackenzie had such a diverse background. Um, You know, he was a doctor, previously a physician, you know, he grew up the son of a doctor, Um, you know, had, had this great interest in camouflage, had a great interest in economics. These all predated his, his career change to becoming, you know, an architect in the golf industry. And so when he became an architect, he had this, you know, pretty diverse background and he kind of, was able to combine all those different things. Whereas I hate to generalize here, but by and large, I think a lot of today's architects or the architects of the last say 40, 50 years, um, have gotten in the golf industry at a pretty young age and that's kind of all they've done. You know, they've, they've just been on a, on that track in the golf business. And so they don't have, you know, the background in medicine or the background in economics or the you know the background in camouflage, you know, like manipulating landforms for a specific reason to trick the eye and uh that doesn't relate at all to golf. Um but then McKenzie brings it into golf, you know, it's a huge, huge feature in, in his work. So I, I just say his diversity and his background, he didn't start, you know, his first foray into the golf industry was at Alwoodley and then Mortown right after in 1907, 1908. So he was 37, 38 years old and um, had done a lot of other stuff in his life at that point.
1: Fair enough. So, uh, Derek, uh, uh, the word to the wise and to the next golf architect coming up, uh, don't groom yourself so much into golf <laughs> architecture normality. Be off, Be uh, Go the distance, go in a different direction, and then come back and you could be the next dollars to there you go second career second career don't make it your first career
2: <laughs> well i think i think mckenzie is one of those unique figures where you know there, there won't be another mckenzie you know the the next mckenzie isn't going to be a mckenzie he's going to be his own you know his own whatever character he creates um but you know the, mckenzie is a one of a kind and um
1: I guess that was my question. Will there be another McKenzie?
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, it depends on how you want to think about it. Uh, I, I, but I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, there's just, it's like, is there going to be another Steve jobs? Uh, you know, yes and no. Um, there's, there's never no one quite like him. You know, there's others that have been very successful. Like an Elon Musk might be the new C jobs. I guess you could argue, but, um, you don't you don't uh, become innovative by copying someone else that has had success in a certain way. You know, they've forged their own path and carved out that territory. So the next McKenzie is going to do something... Um, completely think, different. Maybe not completely different, but um, I think quite a bit different to differentiate themselves.
1: Because I even thought the people you clued, included... In your book, uh, some thoughts on Mackenzie uh, by Davis, Nardi, Shackleford Clayton, Devries, Links, to name a few. I thought even their writings about what they perceived Mackenzie to be uh, and and his purpose in life. But really, Josh, it was you putting this all together that had to to capture all that, that this man was. It's tough to write about iconic person like Mackenzie. Uh, oh. I can't imagine that something, up. Jim, that
2: it, yeah, you touch on something that um, was sort of one of the underlying impetuses for the book and that I had all this material and I'd been thinking for several years about different ideas for a book. And I didn't, I, I ultimately I made the decision at one point that I didn't want to write a book about Mackenzie. Um, you know, Tom and, um, Scott Chisholm and uh, Ray Haddock, you know, had their biography of Mackenzie that they came out with, and I didn't want to do another version of that 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 ground had already been sort of covered. Um, obviously there's there's a lot of material that's not in their book, but i I made the determination sort of early on that I didn't want to write in my own voice a book analyzing Mackenzie in his career. I just wanted to bring his writings to light. So that other people could experience them and so I, I just tried to get out of the way and just put it together in a format that um i thought if he were alive he, he would have sort of approved of that was sort of the mindset that i had
0: well this kind of material it, it can be refreshed it needs to be refreshed and, and this book is, a, is a wonderful way to pull it all yes. together. I would leave the conversation with this one thing. McKinsey, you know, his golf courses, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're spaced out and, and we only get little bits and pieces of them if we're ever lucky enough to play them. But all of his his beliefs are, are right there on the page for everybody to read. If I were king of the world, I would make every golfer in the United States or the world read his writing, specifically the you know some of those paragraphs from uh, Spirit of St. Andrews, and it, just getting back onto some of the topics we were on a minute ago about green speeds and course conditions, and uh, he, we would do the game a great service if we forced everybody to read these. And, and you know, maybe maybe we could shift the uh, the perspective of what American golf should be or could be by a few degrees through his writings. I, I think
2: we all benefit. I love from that it. idea. It's it's funny you say that because I was just talking to a friend recently who's a member at the metal Club and they recently started giving all of their any new member they give them the spirit of saint andrews and they make them read it yes and i was joking with them well yeah do you make them do you give them a quiz afterwards but no yeah you know they're they're giving a copy of the spirit of saint andrews to every new member and saying you know you should you should read this
1: and i'm telling you derek the the uh, the ideas that i talk about the the quotes that i give you they're always in the spirit of what's good for golf. And that's why I try to read these quotes. And as I went through the McKenzie Reader and I saw even more information that I had not seen or had not been privy to, although some of it because of my readings through a Tempo directories and and, uh, historical facts. You are absolutely correct, Josh, Derek. You're absolutely correct. If more people read books like this and less people looked at uh, Purdy Photos, uh, there would be a lot more of an understanding of golf, and and we would be better for it.
0: I think I think that more golfers are persuadable than it might seem at first, but they have to be exposed to the material. So this is a great avenue to expose people to them yeah, uh, yeah. an alternative source of material. You can't get everybody, but um, I think one thing I've noticed over the last decade is with all these young players coming into the game, mostly young men, but but women too, who are, th- there's a willingness to be open-minded about golf. Uh, they're not automatically uh, adopting their, their father's club style of golf and their expectation of what golf should be. So I think things like having them uh, get to know uh, the, the architecture of Seth Raynor or the thoughts of Alistair McKenzie actually does help move them off this, this concept of slick, Expensive American golf that we've been in for decades. So there the audience is out there. Would they just have to be sometimes exposed to the to the ideas of a, of a writer like McKinsey?
2: Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And another thing that really helps with that, aside from, you know, just writings, uh, but is now we have these places like Bandon Dunes uh, and Sand Valley and others that are pretty, you know, yeah, they're remote, but people in the States and all around the world it can get there, but especially the States, you know, the, the Europe, they have their, you know, they have their Scotland and their Island already, but for American golfers in particular, we have this ability to go experience this form of golf that, you know, was so influential for McKenzie growing up is, you know, true links golf golf. It was golf as it was meant to be played. Um, and so now you have a generation or so of golfers that are all, going and experiencing abandoned dunes and places like sand valley and and others for the first time and and that's you know a lot of these people haven't been over overseas and played some of these other types of courses so that's i think really really important that's helping change the entire culture i think you know gradually it's always a slow thing but i I think that's having a huge impact
0: yeah i think so too i agree you'd have to think if McKinsey went to abandoned dunes he'd mostly like what he saw (laughs) you get the feeling he's a pretty irascible character a lot of times but
1: (laughs) (laughs) that might not hackle him too much (laughs) well the first thing he would do is that i could do it better (laughs) i know that
0: (laughs) (laughs) not bad for an american
1: i've seen too much of his writings i know what he would say i could do it better (laughs) that's what we love about him
0: (laughs) Josh, it was great having you. Great talking to you. Thanks for spending time with us. this, this book and, and, you know, the McKinsey reader for everybody. I'll put a link uh, to it. Are are these available or have you sold out? Are they?
2: Yeah, we're on the second printing now. And the second printing is nearly sold out. Uh, there's still some left, but, and then I'm going to be doing a third printing early next year.
0: That's great. Congratulations. What a, what a great addition to anybody's golf library. It's a really a must have. I mean, like I said earlier, just the, the content, the the essays, the writing is great, but it's all put together as Josh had an interactive experience too with with cool routing maps and, and great illustrations and, and sketches. It's it's fantastic.
1: I couldn't say any more, Derek. It's fantastic. It's fantastic and and his words are better than a lot of pictures. I can tell you that right now. And what Josh put together is is it's right there. I mean, it's it's right there. Good job. I'm impressed. I'm impressed.
2: Thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's been fun, guys. Thanks, Josh. Good talking to you. Good to hear your thoughts, too.
1: Thank you. Take care.
2: Take care.
0: All right, Jim, that was Josh Pettit. And, you know, we we ended up at toward the end of that conversation, speaking a lot about the the McKenzie reader, the book that he edited and compiled, which I'm, I'm glad we were able to spend a lot of time with that. But it was actually to me. Very cool, just to talk to him about architecture in general, about building golf courses, about the concept of research, about his his uh, his background experience uh, with with grasses, or talking about uh, you know the greens at Pasatiempo and the Poa versus Bent. Just those, just general architectural topics. It was fun to talk to him about that. Aside from the main topic of our conversation, which which was this great book that he's compiled. Again, I keep going back to this because I, it, it resonates with me so much about the level of of writing and the the intellectual rigor and and not just the intellectual rigor behind the ideas that these architects from from Colt to Simpson to McKinsey to Thomas had, but the fact that they were in this time period where it was very important for them to put their ideas on paper and to create this environment where you had. Uh, really high level and detailed and in some cases new thoughts on how to build and design golf courses. And it's really exciting to read that, to go back and and realize that this is a moment in time where these thoughts are fresh and new and a sort of an artistic groundbreaking versus now where we have very little... Um, serious and I don't I don't I, I know that sounds a little bit harsh but you know I, I guess I I'm guilty of this too but very little I'm with you. but very little of, of architecture writing of consequence there is some I don't want to dismiss everybody there is it is it does exist but certainly not uh, with, with the, the the beautiful florid prose that these guys wrote with or a sense that what we're reading is is advancing the art it's, it's so much of what's been written you know the last couple decades is a is reaching back in time and bringing the thoughts of a McKenzie or a, or a cult into the present because it had been forgotten. It's, it's a re-examining of these, these things. So I don't know if there's a market for that type of architectural literature right now, but it's nice to have a, a reader right now, the McKenzie reader, where we can at least get McKenzie's thoughts contained all in one place and, and appreciate the, the, the broad sense of his views on design and how to build courses.
1: The broad sense of his views, Derek, absolutely correct. And I think to myself, I, I all, I'm as guilty as anybody about going back to the past to recapture my quotes and my thoughts for, for the present and, and, the, and the future. But as I kidded in, the, in, the, in our uh, conversation with Josh, it wasn't like you were going to learn how to text and Twitter at Oxford or Cambridge, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all want this instant information and uh, they didn't learn about instant information. It was well thought out. It was well-written. I'm sure that, that McKenzie or whoever helped him write these, these, uh, these works, uh, was a self-reflection. Many years sitting on boats and planes, I'm sorry, boats and trains and, 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 uh, trips that took forever to make. And today, when we make a trip to go do architecture, whether it's overseas or or uh, one state over, we do it within an hour or two or three. And when McKinsey traveled, he sat on boats and he sat on trains for the longest time. So point. he had he had time to contemplate and reflect. So the writing is much different. That's what's wrong with today's architecture. It's so instant. Derek and it has to be it has to hit you right away uh, so there's no chance to have any basis for what it speaks of and that's why I keep going back to the Mackenzie reader because it has reflection it gave you time to ponder and time to think about what you were trying to tell the world about what you knew
0: correct and it also goes back to the to the matter of incentive, I, when when McKinsey was writing the incentive, his incentive was to educate, to inform, and to advocate. And when he was reporting his experiences with planting grasses on different golf courses or construction methods, there was an eager audience for that. I mean, people, he was building golf courses in places and in certain ways that would have been very interesting for other people to know and learn from. Yeah. Yep. We have that now, but it's it's boiled down more into trades. You know, the the golf course superintendents all share research and information about yep. turf grass, yep. and you can go in there as an architect, and go in there and, and find that information and use it. But it's really contained into their into their that greenkeeping world unless and, and anybody else would have to really go dig down into their journals and attend a conference to, to get that information. But what a, a, a writer the stature of McKenzie is doing is he's putting it out there and everything wasn't as compartmentalized as it is now. You know, his, his, his verbs and, and wordage excuse me, his words could be broadcast uh, amongst a wider golf world than it is now. You know, the ASGCA puts out a magazine every, I guess, month yep. and, yep. and it's good. And the architects write essays for them, but it has a very limited audience. It, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a book. It's not one architect's uh, book of ideas about what's going on. So our architecture has become a, a business and the incentive of designers Right now is to promote themselves and to sell a product. It's not to it's not to argue a position. It's not to lay down tenets that that they believe are the the right way to build a golf course or or, or an argument to say that golf course design should should follow this path or not. Uh, yep. We just it's you know that's left to other people to do on on Twitter, and, uh, you
1: know, Instagram.
0: I don't know where, just in, in the that's bar room, Whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And today's architects, uh, they're so busy controlling the narrative. Uh, did you see what I did lately? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you seen what I've done? You know, it's it, and and Mackenzie. I think. And, and and this is a letter from his sister, uh, Marion McKenzie. She says he took up golf architecture merely as a hobby in the first place. That's a quote mm-hmm. from his sister. He merely took it up as a hobby. So he wasn't trying to to advance his career telling people what I've done. He was trying to analyze what he was witnessing in that era and and talking about it to the people who would be willing to listen. And I thought that was important.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: He wasn't a professional. He didn't grow up wanting to be one. He loved camouflage, as Josh talked about in the discussion. He was simply a hobby. But as he started to read. To analyze it and reflect on it he wanted to pass on what he had learned
0: that's an interesting concept you did have pre-World War II pre-depression you did have people who came into golf design uh, maybe by happenstance but they weren't in the golf world necessarily Maxwell was a banker McKenzie was a doctor uh, you had people who uh, were were gentlemen, aristocrats, you know, and then you, after the war, after World War II, when golf construction starts up again, you know, you really had this entire generation of new designers who came out of colleges. They came out of uh, turf programs. They came out. Yep. They were they were le- yep. uh, civil engineers. They were landscape architects. They were yep. land planners. Machines. Uh, some of them were were. Uh, old time associates from, you know, like Dick Wilson worked for yep. Flynn on his cruise. But, Fazio. Fazio. Um,
1: Working with
0: his uncle. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you had that. And now you have uh, almost kind of like a mix. You, you meet a lot of people who get into it. Um, a lot of the people I'm, I'm sure that you have worked with have landscape architecture degrees. Oh yeah. But, but a lot of people, you know, some people come into it just sort of uh, they they be, they would start working on a crew at their at their club like Josh you know Josh was uh, worked on maintenance crews at the Meadow
1: Club yeah he 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 had a sociology degree i believe and and decided he decided to go do something different with landscape architecture yeah that's right that's but right.
0: but his 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 his, first, his real exposure his first exposure to to oh. design was was working through crews and you have other people who kind of come into it through a more organic side you know it's their 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 path isn't predetermined. So um, I don't know if you can compare that to McKinsey or or not doing it as a vocation, but um, there are, there are some people who kind of, I don't want to say fall into it still, but it was, it's more the case that, that people who've been designing golf courses for since, since World War II have are professionally trained for better or for worse.
1: And the, the last great architect of our era who recently passed, Mr. Pete Dye, was an insurance salesman. There you go. Yep. And I he played golf, but he figured, you know what? I could I could do this better. And he went and studied and did the things he needed to do, but he was an insurance salesman. He could sell. And so he was the last great fall in, if you say, if you if you want to use the word, fell into it that I could do this and he took off with it. And you know, he would you could catch him saying quotes all the time. You know, and and I luckily I got to train underneath him his quotes that would be McKenzie ish. Well, that's you know, why? Why would you do that? All you got to do is this, you know, put a pipe in the ground and make the water go uh, fall from from right to left. It's it was that simple. Mm-hmm. And he talked about that. Unfortunately, we he didn't he wasn't a writer, so he couldn't uh, describe it like McKenzie. Yeah.
0: Well,
1: but he, he had the same grasses. He, you know, grew grasses in his front yard and had the same crazy ideas. Well, what if you just do this? And what if you just do that? And and it was kind of McKenzie-ish. And unfortunately, we just didn't get the same McKenzie. We didn't get the Pete Dye reader.
0: No, we didn't. He wrote the book. He got the the
1: bury me in the pot book. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Which is...
0: uh... which is the kind of kind of book as it's as interesting, as fun as it is to read it's it's the same kind of book that any contemporary architect would write right you but know. right. um, so yeah
1: but whatever that's worth i just uh, that's why i go back to these 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 uh, these golden age designers who were who were telling their story without without uh, controlling the narrative of the history about them
0: well even he though- didn't care even though there's not a there's not a parallel to golf architecture literature now to what was being written in the 1920s, with a few exceptions, we mentioned them in the podcast. The lessons that McKinsey was writing about, his tenets, his principles, his his uh, his advocacy for uh, having no rough, having space to play, giving players yep. the the ability to find their own route through a hole, uh, yes. building. Uh, bunkers that look like they emerged from nature so these are all ideas that have really have nevertheless taken root in modern architecture the archit- the best architecture of the last fifteen to twenty years Correct. so many of the best courses that have come online during this period the the courses that people travel to that are highly ranked embody this McKinseyan spirit so Correct. and it, again, it had to be rediscovered. The people that are including yourself who are building this um didn't you know <laughs> didn't discover this it's all kind of goes back to the links it's not yes. uh uh it's not groundbreaking but it is important that it was rediscovered and McKinsey was a big part of that if we didn't have these writings and they were available it would be it would have been one step harder to get into this place where these are finding these new golf courses that embody this this type of architecture that McKinsey was was propo- uh, proposing and building
1: when he had the chance right and yeah you know, i I I'd so dearly wished I had a chance to meet this man because when I read again, if you don't mind, if I, when I read this letter from his sister, a, a tribute in the McKinsey Reader, it says, I felt I would like to give him some idea of him other than knowing simply of his business career. He was large large-heart, hearted, generous to a fault, hot tempered but no backwash from it. Quickly up, it was over in a moment. (laughs) So his sister describing McKenzie, that he was large-hearted, he was generous to a fault, hot-tempered, but no backwash from it. Quickly it was over. And I wish I'd have got to know this guy because he just (laughs) feels like a guy I would I hate to say it, want to be. <laughs> uh I'm not hot tempered. I am controlled. Um and I I but I felt that this this guy was something different. And how cool would it have been to be a part of his life. Or maybe he was so egotistical you couldn't stand to be around him. Who knows?
0: That's not the impression that I get from from his writings or from his contemporaries, what what we know of him, um, I don't get that impression. But you know that you always read these things like like in a, what, a a dinner table conversation. It's like, well, if you could have, uh, you know, if you could have a dinner with three dead arch- architects yes. or something like, yeah. who who would they be? You know, just to pick yeah. that. Sometimes it's always like, you know, four historical figures. What who would you want to like go on a train ride with? But um, so for you and McKenzie would be at the top of the list just Uh,
1: McKenzie McKenzie and Hunter the team of McKenzie and Hunter I would have loved to have been around because I have written I have read letters where Hunter apologizes for McKenzie's actions (laughs) (laughs) and says I will uh, a Valley Club of Montecito Hunter says I will come back and fix the 15th green because he knows Alistair's not going to come back. Yeah. So I would have liked to have met the team of Hunter and McKenzie because I could have learned a lot from that interaction. Of uh, maybe these guys really didn't like each other, <laughs> but they were the perfect team. Who knows?
0: Yeah, maybe they had that kind of that yin yang relationship. Yes. You know, yes. fire good cop, bad cop. <laughs> Do you know what did I'm, McKenzie know
1: McDonald? Uh, I'm assuming that they all knew each other. Uh, I believe that uh, Max Bear was a link to the East Coast for McKenzie. Max Bear traveled a lot. Uh, I believe that uh, Billy Bell, I believe a lot of these people knew of McDonald, but because they were so far removed on the West Coast, they probably didn't have the same interactions that uh, Devro Emmett had with McDonald or Tillinghast has had with McDonald uh, and Seth Rayner being on the East Coast. So far removed. I think they knew of each other, but I don't know if it was if it was uh, cordial. Maybe in letter writings. I'd love to see that someday. Letters and correspondence between both of those people. It seems McDonald like you need a, a pretty good,
0: pretty big room to fit the ego of oh, Mackenzie and McDonald together.
1: <laughs> I once told an intern one time. He says, "What do you need to have to be a good architect?" And I said, "A big ego." <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> a big ego, but a, a a deep sense of insecurity at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> he,
1: he he was waiting for some profound you know book that he could read, and I simply said you had to have a big ego because you have to believe that you're the smartest guy in the block, and everybody around you uh, uh, you have to convince them that what you're thinking is right. So McDonald, same thing, ego. Uh, Rayner tempered that. McKenzie, big ego. Hunter tempered that. And so that's why I would want to meet the group, not just the ego, the guy that tempered the ego. Does that make sense?
0: Would you say die was forceful and, and Alice was the, the counterweight?
1: <laughs> I would say yes. That Pete would say, Come on, you can't do that. And Alice said, Oh, come on, Pete. You know, come on, Pete. Come on, Pete. You know, that's that's I've heard that a lot in my life come on, Pete, uh, we got to do this. And so there There was a temperament. And Ron Witten would know that because he spent time with both Pete and Alice at the same time. I think that Pete had these outlandish ideas and Alice was the temperament. I think McDonald had these outlandish ideas and Rainer was the temperament. And and same with Mackenzie and Hunter. And and who was that for Maxwell? You know, uh, and who was that for Tillinghouse? And who was that for Ross? Who were those guys that tempered these egos to get them to get these features to be built, and we kind of covered that in our conversation with Josh. But Josh is right. Mackenzie had a flair to teach, and when he went to uh, he went to Australia, he taught Morecambe. He found the guy that yeah. could bring out that the the ideas that Mackenzie wanted. And when he came to California, he found the guy, or Rainer found him, and and so. Uh, but but Josh is absolutely right. Mackenzie was the genius, but somebody has to implement the genius because if you can't implement the ideas, then they're just ideas, Derek. And I'll fight that till the end of my life. They're just ideas until you find somebody to implement
0: them. Right. You got to get it in the ground.
1: You got to get it in the ground. Otherwise it's just a napkin drawing, a sketch in the sand, a painting, a thought—you have to get it in the ground.
0: Well said. Well said. Well said. The point about the ego is important. One. <laughs> no, I don't think any great artist produced great art because they were willing to take direction from their patron. You know, even when even when Francisco Goya was painting. Uh, portraits for the for the royalty who had hired him to do so. He found a way to put his own little gr- grotesque twists on the the faces and the features of yes. these people that he probably <laughs> abhorred, <laughs> yes. and and told them it was great work. And they and they <laughs> continued to hire him. But he didn't just paint them straight up, uh, and that's why he, we remember him.
1: Yeah, I I got to tell you the story. I, I sorry, I have to tell you the story because it goes right down the article. The uh, the idea you talk about artists. There was a young kid who helped me uh, at Blindbrook. Uh Jeff Stein and uh, his Jeff Stein's friend uh, helped uh, me at Blindbrook. Very talented guys. This guy is an absolutely genius painter, Derek, genius painter. I he showed me some of his work uh, and I said, "You know what you ought to do? I I I'd like a painting of this whole uh Blindbrook." And he said, "Well, Jim, if you want a painting of Blindbrook, you should just do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's what an artist does. He doesn't paint what you want him to paint. That's right. He paints what he wants to paint and makes it artwork. Hmm. And I thought that is perfect. Perfect. Just what you say. An artist doesn't paint what you want. He paints what he wants and it becomes an iconic piece or it gets thrown in the trash.
0: It's a good, uh, it's a good anecdote to end on. McKinsey, I I don't get the feeling McKinsey took too many orders from anybody. <laughs> no, he would no. just do it and then leave and let his let everybody else deal with it. We didn't even talk about Augusta and Bob Jones and that relationship. We we'll That's save the, that for another time, but that that was also a
1: probably a fire and ice relationship. Oh, you don't think so? A good <laughs> player telling a, a, a creative genius how to build a golf course? Oh, I witnessed that before. Yeah. <laughs> Can I leave you with this quote, Derek? Yeah, let's listen. From the McKenzie Reader, and I quote Dr. Alistair McKenzie. It would be a great thing if millionaires would leave their millions for the purpose of of encouraging playing fields. It would certainly keep many people out of the hospital, end quote. That's what McKenzie wanted to tell all those millionaires. It'd be great if you left your millions for us to build more golf courses because it would keep people out of the hospital. <laughs> Can I borrow your extra millions Derek? So I could go keep some people out of the hospital.
0: <laughs> That's a fresh take. I haven't heard that one in a while. I know McKinsey <laughs> did believe golf was, you know, a societal yes. cure or yes. a societal balm, but I haven't heard that in a while as the, <laughs> the great push toward a, out of social consciousness, you know, rather than, rather than commerce to get rich people to develop golf courses.
1: If you, if you let me build these golf courses, I will keep people out of the hospitals. <laughs> Maybe that's our cure for homelessness
0: around the country It's more golf. I, I just,
1: it's, it's amazing. It's, I've learn. heard worse ideas. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable, Derek. I had to pass that on. Love it. <laughs>
0: Love it. Well, it's all right there in the McKinsey Reader. Uh, uh, I encourage those of you who, who don't have it to, to look into it. I'll put a link to, to Josh's website and how to get the book in the show notes so you can refer to it there. It was a great conversation, Josh. A did great a, conversation. a service to all of us who, who love golf and, and, and love uh, to, to read profound, well-written, beautiful thoughts, by especially by in this case, Alistair McKinsey. And Agreed. it was great to talk to Josh. It was a really good conversation.
1: Agreed. Talented kid talented guy, talented book. I hope he is successful in everything he does. He already has proven his ability to capture uh, history and put it in a condensed volume. Great yep. work. think he's just
0: getting started. We'll hear more from Josh Pettit down the road. Great work. Sounds good, Jim. Thanks. Yeah. We'll talk again next time.
1: Let me have some of your millions. <laughs> <laughs>